Hello, good evening. Welcome back to Golden Beer Talk. Lovely to see you all. Some we haven't seen in a while. We're going to get started. Of course, we like to start and end with gratitude. So we're going to begin with the Windy Saddle and their awesome staff. They always treat us so well. We got the string bakery cake so you can actually see what's going on back there. Isn't that nice? And we also want to thank Golden.com because they always promote our events and they also treat us awesome. If you haven't signed up on Golden.com for their information, emails about what's going on around town, make sure you do that today, tonight when you get home. Golden.com. At the end of the evening, if you are so moved, there are some containers over here for dirty dishes. Something to think about? <laughs> and I'm going to start by bringing up our beer ambassador this evening. He's going to talk about the new brewery in town and the beer that we're drinking tonight, and then he's also going to introduce our speaker. Come on up, Frank, the beer ambassador. Well, thank you all for coming again. And um, this month, our featured brewery is Holiday Brewing, which as we, we uh, have a beer value proposition that we work with the breweries, you know, and we said, we'll kind of promote you, we'll, brand, we'll wear your branded things, et cetera, et cetera. So I have one of the few holiday t-shirts in town. And I'm going to take back tomorrow. <laughs> I've got a lot of, got a lot of beer-related t-shirts these days. And um, yeah, so this is Holiday Brewing Company. They opened up uh, in early February, and my wife and I were there at the ribbon cutting, you know, with the Chamber of Commerce. And they're at 801 Brickyard Circle, Unit B. So that's kind of just north of Spider Cove, a little bit south of that car wash on the west side of Highway 93. And they are a 100% dedicated gluten-free brewery. They make no other beers there, you know, it's no gluten-containing beers. And a lot of, you know, like for instance, I've, I've had this conversation with a number of people, and they said, well, New Belgium Brewery makes a gluten-free beer. Well, they make a gluten-containing beer that they put an enzyme in that should take care of most of the gluten, but not necessarily all of it. Oh. Right now, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and right now, there are only five 100% dedicated gluten-free breweries in the country. Um, Holiday is the fifth, and it's the first one in Colorado. And I've, I've never had a gluten-free beer before, but I have also had the conversation with people that said, some of it is kind of nasty, but these are really good beers. I've tried, a couple of weeks ago, they had three beers on tap, and all three were really good beers. I had the IPA, I had the blonde, and I had the stout. Because I don't want to bring you guys any bad beer. <laughs> That's the only reason. That's the only reason. No. So you, you might be wondering, so what do they make their beer with? And they brew it with buckwheat and milk. And buckwheat apparently is gluten-free, despite the name. You might think it's got gluten in it. I did, but no, it doesn't. And um, uh, within the month, they're going to have their own canning op uh, canning line and canning operation. And again, it's, I'm sorry? But yeah, it'll be dedicated so that their beer is truly gluten-free. You know, there are these... Um, uh, portable canning lines that some of the breweries work with, and so you can get cross-contamination. So they want their own dedicated canning line. But within the month, they're going to start canning the Blondale. And right now, they have Blondale, the Riva Stout, which these are the two beers we had here tonight, but the Stout's now gone. 
they also have Fat Randy's IPA, but they're running low on that. They wouldn't have been able to fill four growlers for us tonight. And then they also have on tap a Buckwick Belgian. So it's made with buckwheat, but it's a wick type beer. And um, within a couple of weeks, they're going to have a double IPA on tap, and they're going to have a red ale. Mm. And since horse diplomacy has been important for Golden Beer Talk, <laughs> I can tell you that that is the most horse-friendly brewery because they have the best place to tie your horse. There's nice glasses, <laughs> nice fats, and one of my buddies said, you know, my horse really likes beer. Have you ever tried beer with your horse? And I thought, well, you know, she just turned 22, so it's only been a year. <laughs> but anyway, I gave her a chance at IPA, and I gave her a chance at the Stout, and she didn't, she didn't care for it But I'll ride her there again. All right, so our speaker tonight is Dr. Kenneth Gage from CDC up in Fort Collins. And I also want to say we've got someone else from CDC here, Scott Sudweeds, who is actually the proximate reason that we've got Dr. Hagen, because uh, I've been interested in you know, uh, communicable diseases ever since a prof at school said, you should read this book. There's, he, he always was recommending good books and stuff, but of course I was in college and I didn't really care until after I got done with college, and I started looking through my notes, and I had in the margins of my notes, you know, read rats, lice, and history. Read this, read that. So at one point, I started to go back through my notes and get those books and read them. Rats, lice, and history by Hans Zinsner is about typhus fever, which is spread by lice. And it was an amazing book, uh, chapters with titles like on uh, and the relative unimportance of generals in war. And talking about how communicable disease was more frequently the cause of one side winning than the other. So that led into you know more communicable disease stuff. And me wanting to get someone from Fort Collins Metroborne Disease Lab here, which I always had in my mind as the plague lab. So that's why we got Dr. Kenneth Gage. Took a couple of tries, but we, we found someone to come here from Fort Collins. And he's with CDC's Division of Vector-Borne Diseases in Fort Collins. And he oversees efforts to prevent and control diseases transmitted by mosquitoes, ticks, fleas, and mites, including plague. And there's there's a couple of little uh, uh, flyers out there that are not unlike, oh, I lost mine, um, signs that were up here in Golden last year during Buffalo Bill days about the squirrels having been uh, diagnosed carrying plays, you know, plays transmitted then from squirrels to humans. So it's endemic, and you'll hear more about this. But anyway, as Chief of Entomology in the Ecology Division of Bacterial Diseases at the Fort Collins Lab, Dr. Gage focuses on domestic and international monitoring, prevention, and control of vector-borne diseases on behalf of CDC, and as a consultant to the World Health Organization and its affiliates. Dr. Gage is the author and co-author of more than 183 scientific publications, which is a heck of a lot, yeah. including 127 peer-reviewed articles, eight invited reviews, and 21 book chapters. So Dr. Gage from Fort Collins. Well, thank you for the chance to come down and talk to you. Um, I have to admit, when they asked me, they said, you usually don't use PowerPoint. I don't know. 
how many of you make presentations, but I'm one of those people without PowerPoint, I don't conflict the function. <laughs> so I said, well, I gotta have something. So I bought a box of goodies here that I'll drag out as we go along with my audio visual aids. But what I'd like to start with is it's always interesting to me what people think about plague. So when, when, I, when people say plague, what do you think of? Can anyone say what they think of? Monty Python. Monty Python. Monty Python. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> Usually when we're doing plague case investigations, we go door the It's like, well, what do you think of Monty Python? But that's a good answer. Bring, bring out your head. You know? Well, that's probably all you need to know. What, what about anybody else? Please, exactly. 1348, yeah, exactly. The Black Death. Um, so, Bubonic. and then, pardon? Bubonic. Bubonic, yeah. They're, that's something that people often say, and they'll, they'll say plague, and then they'll have, they'll think bubonic plague is a different disease. And really, that's just simply a clinical form of plague, and there are three major forms. There's the bubonic form, which has a bubo, which is really just a swollen lymph nerve that can get about the size of a golf ball or a hen's egg, extremely painful. And those show up, like if you were bitten by a flea on your arm, then it drains the regional lymph node here under the arm, and that'll swell up and give you this egg-sized lymph node if you're not treated quickly enough. Extremely painful, that's called the bubo, and that gives that clinical form of the disease that's named bubonic plague. But there are other forms of the disease. Virtually all will have fever, headache, um, aches and pains, uh, you'll feel malaise, you're just extremely tired, no energy whatsoever, you just flat on your back. Um, but the other forms, the three major forms, there's bubonic, there's another form called septicemic, where you've got the symptoms of septic shock. That's like gram-negative sepsis, where your blood pressure can just fall very dramatically, your blood vessels become leaky, you can start to hemorrhage. Um, that's a very dangerous form of disease, and if it's not treated quickly, it's virtually always fatal. Um, there are two forms of septicemic plague. You can get what's called a secondary septicemic plague, and what we mean by secondary is that your first presentation probably would have been bubonic plague. So you have the small lymph nodes, and then it wasn't treated, so then it goes on to the next stage in the progression of disease, septicemic plague. That's secondary septicemic plague. But you can also get a form called primary septicemic plague, which is particularly dangerous because in that case, the bacteria has been able to bypass the lymph nodes and immediately start to multiply in the bloodstream and cause sepsis. And so that progresses very rapidly. It's very difficult for a physician to diagnose primary septicemic plague. For one thing, most physicians, even in Colorado where we have human cases, most physicians will never see a case in their career. Somebody comes in, they're extremely ill, they have symptoms of septic shock, fever, they're, they're basically they're crashing right there in the emergency room. And to make a diagnosis at that point is very difficult. Um, if you take blood for culture, the bacterium grows fairly slowly. So you won't see it on a plate for a couple days. If you use one of the automated diagnostic machines we have now, they're good. But sometimes they misidentify it. So we'll find people with plague, they'll, instead of saying they have the Yersinia pestis, which is the plague bacterium, It'll say they have Yersinia pseudotuberculosis, which is a related uh, bacterium, but it causes a, at least compared to plague, a fairly mild diarrheal illness. Um, so when you see pseudotuberculosis, you have a critical error patient, you kind of scratch your head what's going on. And that's just a misdiagnosis of the automated diagnostic machine. The codes that are put into it sometimes aren't 
uh, right to pick up plague itself. There's a minor, a couple minor biochemical differences that you'll see in the biochemical tests that could distinguish plague. Um, in some cases, we picked up even some other stuff, Pseudomonas Montanomonas. So you get misdiagnoses on sometimes on these automated machines. But in any event, these septicemic plague can progress so rapidly that the physician really is, it's hard for them to make diagnosis. And even if the is there, it can be hard to make a diagnosis because lots of things can cause lymph nodes to swell. And, uh, and again, if you've not seen cases and you aren't thinking plague, um, you know, it can be very difficult to make the diagnosis. And unfortunately, plague is a disease that you, once you become ill, you can be dead within two days. It's kind of onset symptoms. We've seen that a number of times. And uh, the bubonic form progresses a little more slowly. Maybe you'll live five or six days untreated. And about 50 to 60% of untreated cases are fatal. Um, some people survive, and the people that survive are the ones whose immune system is the response is adequate to stop it at the lymph node. So they get the blue bone, it swells up, but they don't go on and get the septicemic form of the disease. Once you get sepsis, if you don't just treat it, you're probably going to die. There's another form of disease even more frightening than the septicemic plague, and that's pneumonic plague. And that is, can be transmitted person to person through coughing. So if you have a person who wasn't treated, they get bubonic plague, they're not treated, it goes on to secondary septicemic. And you've got the, then you've got the bacteria circulating high numbers through your bloodstream, and you're getting multiple organs infected, including the lungs. If it gets in the lungs, cause infection seeds there, then you can get respiratory illness. You'll start coughing, got pneumonia. As you cough, you'll expel these respiratory droplets. As your lungs start to hemorrhage, you notice the sputum from these people as they're coughing is tinged with red flecks of blood. And at that point, that's extremely dangerous. And that can go person to person. And if you get a person infected that way, then they have what's called primary pneumonic plague. Whereas if you got it as a consequence of septicemic plague, that's secondary pneumonic plague. But, and it's, it's a funny thing, those secondary pneumonic cases aren't quite as contagious. Usually the sputum's a little more, let's say, tenacious. It's a little stickier, a little thicker. It doesn't spread as easy. But the problem is, in many areas where we see pneumonic outbreaks, you see that people don't have good medical care. Like in developing countries, we still see pneumonic outbreaks. So family members are taken care of. The people are dying. The family members down in the face of the person who's dying saying, what can we do for you? All right. So there's about six inches gap there. So they still can manage to transmit. But once the person gets it in the lungs and you're infected through inhalation and you get primary pneumonic plague, that form of disease can spread very quickly. The sputum is much more watery and it's easier to spread through respiratory droplets. And then you can get actual outbreaks that spread very quickly. The, probably the worst example in the 20th century was in Manchuria. There was an outbreak in 1910-1911 where 50 to 60,000 people died of pneumonic plague. The pneumonic plague still um, is a great concern in the United States. We don't have a lot of cases. Fewer than 2% of our cases are pneumonic plague, and I'll talk a little bit more about sources of those cases. Later, we've not had human-to-human, -human, or definitely documented human-to-human -human transmission since 1924. We had one suspicious case here in Colorado a couple of years ago, but it might have been from a dog, too, but it's hard to tell how the got detected. But uh, anyway, it's still a concern, and partly because of bioterrorism. Um, if somebody's to uh, try to commit an act of bioterrorism, it's most experts think what they would do is get some kind of an aerosol generator or something, put it in a subway station or a sports arena or something like that, turn the thing on, 
blast all this stuff up in the air, and then people would inhale it. And it's that's a frightening thing. I, I, you know, I don't stay awake at night every because it takes a lot of technology to use and do something like that. But if the terrorist was smart enough, they had enough support. Um, and if they took the bacterium and engineered it to be antibiotic resistant, um, then you've got maybe a few hundred cases of pneumonic, primary pneumonic plague that you know are coming in hospitals and droves. You can't treat it; it's antibiotic resistant, or you have to find an antibiotic that would work. Um, and that, that can be very frightening. Um, hopefully, you get people into clinics or the hospitals as quickly as possible, put them in respiratory isolation, and stop this chain of transmission. But nevertheless, I don't know whether I'm so much worried about person-to-person -person spreading that situation, but depending on how clever the terrorists are, you could infect a lot of people. And if you could say on it has multi-drug resistance, most people may not survive. So it is a frightening thing still. Um, so I wanted to talk there about the forms. Uh, I mentioned that, somebody mentioned the Black Death, and I wanted to mention historically, there have been three plague pandemics, and that's how most people, most people know the plague from the Black Death. Um, but there was also an earlier pandemic called Justinian's Plague that occurred in the end of the uh, Eastern Roman Empire as it was waning the time of Justinian, the Emperor Justinian. And it wiped out about a fourth of the people in the Mediterranean area. And Frank mentioned that book, Rats, Lice, and History. There's a chapter in there on plague. He's trying to say that typhus is not plague. And he's so different, but he goes through the outbreak of plague in Constantinople during Justinian's time. They were loading bodies on ships and just sending them out to sea and setting them on fire. Mm -hmm. The city itself had walls with these turrets and the, the towers. They would take the roofs off the towers and dump the bodies in there like grain silos. And people were dying so fast. I mean, it's an incredible pandemic. It's not as well known as the Black Death. Um, and then there's been one other plague a pandemic that we need to know about. And that's called the modern pandemic, third pandemic, last pandemic. People call it different things. It began in the late 1800s in China. In the 1890s, it finally reached the coast of China, and in Canton and Hong Kong, there were rat, infected rats. These rats got on ships, and they were carried around the globe. And so you, at that point, you had many areas around the world became infected for the first time. And it was during that modern pandemic that the plague actually came to America. And so in 1900, this Japanese ship, the Nippon Maru, got a dead sailor aboard, and that probably was the point of introduction, but in any event, some ship brought in some infected rats. The rats got into San Francisco, and there was a huge outbreak, particularly in Chinatown, and there were hundreds of people died of plague in that, that initial invasion. There are other points in the United States that also had plague along the West Coast, and then along the Gulf Coast. And it's interesting, the Gulf Coast introductions and the ports along the Gulf Coast, you had small bubonic plague outbreaks associated with rats and their fleas, and uh, they, uh, but those did not seem to spread inland, and they didn't go anywhere, and it died out fairly quickly, which is what often happens. A plague gets in an area, there may be enough rats and rat fleas to allow it to transmit for a while and keep cycle going for a while, but it can't be sustained. But in some of the other areas that were infected during the last pandemic, once it got ashore, it not just found rat, it didn't just find rats uh, to, to infect the, the bacteria along the shore and rats and fleas. What it also found were wild, native wild rodents, and that's what happened here in the U.S. And then about seven or eight years after the introduction of the bacterium, it had spread to the wild rodent populations around the Bay Area, and perhaps around Los Angeles is another might have been area of introduction, but 
definitely around the San Francisco area. So you're starting to see California ground squirrels dying to play. There's some wood rats, things like that. So it was in the native rodent populations, and some of their fleas were competent vectors to transmit the disease. Once they got into those native rodent populations, it just spread eastward. So that by the 1940s, it was here in Colorado. So in a four-year period, it reached all the way about to the 100th meridian, which is kind of the demarcation between the high plains and then going into the mid-grass, tall-grass prairies. And it's a big ecological change there. You get west of that line, the precipitation um, doesn't exceed evaporation is much drier. And for whatever reason, it looks like plague is, is in, it comes into life, usually in areas that are semi-arid, um, fairly cool, um, not extremely hot. So like the Sonoran Desert, it's just too hot. The Mojave, you don't see a lot. Except, well, maybe the high Mojave, it's a little cooler. But really hot areas typically don't have plague. But the western United States, the high plains, the mountainous areas, Colorado Plateau, what have you, it's ideal plague territory. There's a wide variety of roads that can be hosted. So uh, now I just uh, stop. But if we look at it on a worldwide basis, I want to make one mention. Really, where we're in, in the, uh, the situation of the world now, in order, where the biggest worries are in developing countries, where you've got poverty, you've got villages up where areas are heavily infested with rats, and they carry a particular rat flea, the oriental rat flea. It's an Opsoketopus. Um, and then sometimes they're related to these, an Opsoketopus in Africa. But uh, anyway, they have these rats and rat fleas. Those areas where you'll still get big plague epidemics because when plague gets in these rats, quite often coming from wild rodents, it's in the rats um, from wild rodents, please made by the rat or something, and it gets in these village rat populations, the black rat or ship rat or um, rook rats, another name for rattus rattus. Once it gets in these rats, then it just spreads like crazy, and these rats will start to die. And right now we're doing research in Uganda. And the typical hut there is a mud hut, circular, with a thatched roof on it. These rats love to live in that thatch. So when they start to die, they fall out of the thatch and land on the hut floor, or the infected fleas that were on the rats start raining out of the thatch onto people, and they get bitten, and you get actual outbreaks of the disease. Um, unfortunately, medical care is not that great in those situations, so quite a few people end up dying of the disease. Um, but that's the area of the greatest risk. So. If I go uh, some of my props work the student at CSU gave us this. <laughs> and I'm sad to say it's not, I, I usually, when I start my talk, I have this three panel slide that shows the rat, the flea, and the bacteria. So I, I can't start a talk with it without having that. So this is my flea. Um, CSU student made it, and a professor, she, she had left the university many years ago. The professor over the entomology institute gave it to us. I guess besides the play group, we needed it. Um, great demo. Um, unfortunately, it's not a rat flea. Uh, the girl who made this uh, did a really good job anatomically. You can identify the species of the thing. But, uh, this is actually a cat flea because a general comment out here. She was very anatomically correct. Cat fleas are lousy vectors of play, but it's all it got. <laughs> No, this this general comb, yeah, they're little sharp uh, spines of the exoskeleton of the flea. Um, the front one's long enough that I can tell it's a cat is not a dog. Uh, this I want to show flavor over. Somebody dropped this on my desk. It's 
to squee and bite me. <laughs> Not anatomically correct. <laughs> and then, you know, down here in the bottom somewhere, I feel like Bowling was trying to pull a rabbit out of the cow or something. Let's see what he got. Yeah, dead rodents. So. Yeah. Wait, I've got a box full of dead rodents. Now, before you panic, um, this one, nobody's ever got sick from handling these, and this one was put up in, well, this is 1994. This is a really new one. I've got some that were put up in 1946. Uh, anyway, this is a roof router, black rat. The hair has started a little lighter, maybe, but they can come in this particular, even they call them black rats. They have a very long tail. It's named Rattus Rattus, and it's been carried by ships all over the world in tropical and semi-tropical areas. Doesn't do very well in northern temperate climes, but does really well in tropical, semi-tropical areas. And it has the flea, you're in a rat flea on it. And it's the most dangerous um, vector of plague around the world. It causes, in most cases, a source of infection. Um, this species, uh, I gotta stop and tell a little story here. Um, this actually came from Java, Indonesia, which Java has the only place in Pine Plague in Indonesia. And it, the only place that's in Java is on the top of two mount, uh, volcanoes. And so it's like people walk the tops off these volcanoes, there'd be no plague in Java. Because the only place that's up cool enough, dry enough to really keep the disease cycling, they came in on ships and it burned through the rat populations, caused big die-offs in the rats, and hundreds of cases during the last pandemic. But once it burned through the rat population, you know, where's it going to go? Well, what it did, in a couple areas, it managed to get up the slope on these volcanoes, and it found native rat populations living in the jungle that were capable hosts of plague and had vectors on them that were good vectors of plague. And those two little foci have persisted of infection, persisted to the present day. And uh, one thing that, when you're a biologist, and my PhD is in zoology, and I guess my training medical knowledge, but when you're in that profession, everyone's like, you're out doing field work and you stop and you say, this is really the coolest, you know. <laughs> I remember I was collecting ticks in Japan one time. <laughs> there was this, we were in this bamboo forest and there was these little green tree frogs, you know, and I'm dragging this dragonfly on trying to get these ticks to crawl on this piece of cloth or whatever. That was the coolest thing I've ever done. When I was in Indonesia, we were setting out traps in these villages and you look up and there's this volcano just smoking, you know, it smokes all the time, and about every 10 years it erupts and all this magma flows down the mountainside. And when that happens, sometimes it had plague outbreaks because all the rats start to run out of the forest and start burning down slope into the villages. And mm -hmm. Actually get plague outbreaks from that. But uh, anyway, uh, it was a really cool place to do work. And this rat um, actually came from that area, so it's kind of special. And don't worry, you won't get infected if you don't hear Okay, so the other component of the plague uh, unholy trio, or whatever you want to call it, uh, trinity, is uh, the bacteria. And I actually, that flea had a little stuffed bacteria, like a sausage-shaped black thing, it was supposed to be a plague bacteria. I couldn't find that, and I didn't wear this tie because it didn't really match, but uh, if you're a plague nerd, you own one of these ties. <laughs> this tie, these little red things are supposed to be plague bacteria, and they don't really look like that much of stain in that color, but uh, this was a set of ties you get for different diseases, Lyme disease, smallpox, all these things. So this one says, uh, 
It says, plague is a bacterial disease transmitted by fleas from rats to humans. It killed nearly a quarter of European population in the 14th century pandemic. And then it gives you all you need to know. Prevention centers on improved sanitary conditions and the eradication of road residues. You learn all you need to know off this topic. <laughs> <laughs> the other component in plague. So you've got the flea, the rat, and the bacterium. So that's, uh, I used to have a slide to show that, it's a lot easier. <laughs> so how is plague spread? I think I've already let the cat out of the bag. But most cases are acquired by infectious flea mites. So if you have a rodent die-off called epizootic, these rodents start to die in large numbers, the animal starts to cool down after it's dead, the fleas know that the, the world's gone to pot, need to find a new host. So what they do, if you're walking by and they see a little bit of shadow or they catch your scent or whatever, they'll hop off and they can hop on you. They might hop on another rat, but they also can hop on you. And if they're infectious at that point, uh, they'll go, if they bite you, then you can go ahead with the plague. And if they bite you, you're liable to get the bubonic form of the disease, you know, the bubonic plague. Um, you can also get plagued by handling infected animals, and I'll mention this again, but uh, if you're skinning rabbits or you're handling infected cats or whatever, you can get infected that way by handling animals. And then the rarest way to get it is through inhalation. We talked about the mnemonic plague outbreaks, but you can also get it from animals. Um, we've had cases here in Colorado where people had sick cats and people are looking at the cats and the vet's looking at the cats. Cats are coughing and you inhale that. You get the primary mnemonic plague. Um, had an unusual case a couple of years ago with a dog. Dogs usually don't so severe illness plague, but this dog did, and for whatever reason, um, had a very severe illness and developed plague pneumonia. And the dog was had hemoptysis, the bloody sputum, and coughing, and actual plague pneumonia. Managed to infect its owner, but it also managed to infect three other people that had come in contact with the dog, which I can't tell you how unusual that is. And since plague was introduced here in 1900, that's the first dog-associated case that we've had, where we can really tag it to the dog. The other thing that's unusual is usually the cases occur singly, or maybe a cluster of cases associated with a big die-off of rodents or something, you know, one or two, three cases associated with a die-off. But to have a group of four people with the same exposure getting plagued is, is really unusual in the U.S. Not developing countries, that happens frequently. But what it shows you is that dog, for whatever reason, those people were getting exposed to infectious respiratory droplets aerosols. And it shows you, under the right conditions, plague can infect people and it can spread very quickly. If those people weren't treated, that'd be four people who then were coughing could spread to other people and could just become this chain of infection. Very, very dangerous. So, the most in, in the modern world, the most dangerous scenarios are actually rat die offs in poor, poverty stricken rural areas in the tropics. Rats die off of fleas by people. So when we have bubonic plague outbreaks now, they're usually in, under these conditions and they're associated with rats. Um, so, and then I'm gonna finish up, just mention one thing. The evolutionary history of plague is fascinating. Plague bacteria could be as young as 1,500 years and probably not more than 20 to 30,000 years old. It's very recently evolved and it's so closely related to this Yersinia pseudotuberculosis, this gut bacterium that causes diarrhea. Chromos the chromosomal DNA is, in, in many senses, virtually identical. Um, people use 16S ribosomal RNA, I don't get into genetics too much, but to, to distinguish like, bacterial species and the molecular typing. 
And it's identical between pestis and the Assyrian surgical protocols. That's how close they are. But what plague has done is it's actually shut down some genes that no longer express the plague. They're still in this other bacterium that's a gut bacteria. Now they're called pseudogenes. Now they're there. We can recognize they're related to what was in the ancestral uh, gut bacterium, but they've been shut down. They don't, they don't make their product anymore. For example, there's a gene that uh, is for adhesion to the gut cells lining the gut in the pseudotuberculosis. Whereas in plague, that's been shut down. This, this bacterium wants to circulate freely in the blood, so it doesn't want to attach to cells. So that's been shut down on um, selective pressure to shut that down. The other thing that's happened is plague's picked up two plasmids with extra chromosomal DNA that help it be transmitted by insects. And then also, it's got a, a plasminogen activator that once the insect bites the person or the bat or whatever, and injects the bacteria in this particular plasminogen activator, that's fibrolytic activity, you can break out of that bite site and then be carried to the lymph nodes quickly before it's gobbled up and destroyed. So we see that it's leaving this gut that it had as pseudotuberculosis you know, becoming you know, more and more adapted to effective born transmission uh, life cycle. Uh, we believe that the plague evolved in, in Western China, uh, Northwestern China, Central Asia area, um, and then again was spread through that area, and then hundreds of years ago, maybe seven, eight hundred years ago, reached East Africa. So East Africa's had plague for a long time. But most of the rest of the world, Southern Africa, Southeast Asia, the Americas did not get plague until the pandemic. And that's when it was spread there. So. Um, and again, in the US, first appeared here in 1900. I think I already mentioned that, got into wild rodents. Uh, Currently, we have been able to identify plague in 17 western states. So basically take the plain states, go from the Dakotas down to Texas, sweep west, all of those states have enzootic foci plague. In other words, it's in the wild panel, specifically wild rodents there and their fleas. I know so among those 17 states, 13 have had cases of human plague, including Colorado. And since it was first introduced in, in 1900, we've had 1,046 cases of plague. So to think about that, over well over 100 years, we've only had a thousand. So it's a very rare disease. Zika's coming in, and they're recording the number of cases in tens of thousands. And this mosquito-borne disease is coming in. So plague, fortunately, is very rare. The real problem with plague, though, is even though it's rare, sorry, I keep stepping like a microphone. Even though the, the um, disease is rare, it's one of those things that the consequences can be very high because the chances of having a fatal case. It's very high. The person doesn't receive prompt treatments. We have people who die um, every couple of years. We have fatal cases in the US, and there are, each one of them, of course, is a tragedy for their families. Um, most of the cases of those 1,046, almost 500, 499 occurred before 1925. 1925 was the last rat associated outbreak in the US occurred in Los Angeles. Since that time, we've had no human cases associated with outbreaks. In um, rats, roof rats, or Norway rats, even one. So we have no cases associated with rats. They were, all of our cases since that time have been associated in a really ineffective wild rodents and their fleas. There may be, it may be indirectly because a carnivore, like a domestic cat, or a bobcat, or a coyote, or something may eat one of those infected animals, and then if you handle that animal, you get infected. You know, it's, it's, but it started with the rodent. So like the same with the rabbits. Rabbits are not really good 
hosts of plague, not probably not involved in natural cycle that much, but they live in the same area, and the rodent fleas will bite the rabbits and give them plague. So if you're a rabbit hunter out there, you shoot a rabbit, you're not wearing gloves, you skin the animal, you can get infected. And there have been quite a few rabbit hunting cases in Colorado. So, um, how do we acquire plague in the U.S. today? And the rodent flea bites. I think I can't drive home enough. The high risk conditions for humans in the U.S. now are associated with epizootics and these wild rodents. So, we have die-offs from plague in the prairie dog populations up and down the Front Range. And the risks are pretty low to people as long as you establish prairie dog colonies. The other thing that helps us out a lot in those situations is the prairie dog fleas really don't like to bite people. The bigger risks come when you get to South Central and Southwestern Colorado where you have rock squirrels. Those animals like to live in close association with people. They'll burrow under the wood pile. They'll burrow under the foundation of your garage, whatever. And they have a flea on them that's a pretty efficient transmitter of plague, and it likes to bite people. So most cases in the U.S., um, if you look, are from California ground squirrels or from rock squirrels. We obviously don't have the California ground squirrel here. That's out in California, Nevada, Southern Oregon. But they have the same species of fleas on them. So that particular ground squirrel flea, Rapsa Montana, is the primary vector to people, and it will bite people. It's very rarely, I know when I've done plague case investigations, I went to areas of prey dogs, and prey dog fleas will jump on you and crawl around on your hand, and you think, oh, they don't, they don't bite right away. They, you don't know tempt fate, they can't bite. But, uh, <laughs> but I've had rock squirrel, working in rock squirrel areas, where they jump up, get on you, tip up immediately, and start to feed. Um, in that case, you should go back to the dust for doxycycline. Um, <laughs> you might have been exposed. Um, but uh, but they, they're pretty aggressive as far as feeding on people. Um, normally, I, you know, I have um, insect or pollen deed on, which works pretty good for health fleas, but once while it wears off, you put it back on again. Um, but those fleas will feed on people. So we also have, again, uh, quite a few cases occur from handling uh, infected animals. Here in Colorado, the big players for handling infected animals are rabbits. But quite a few cases associated with people hunting rabbits and skinning them. And then the other thing is domestic cats. Um, cats can be a source of infection either for the, the owner or for the, the veterinarian. I mentioned the situation where the cat gets plague pneumonia, is coughing, and you know, uh, uh, you know, spreads it to the vet or the owner. So they, we've also had a case where we think there was a lesion in the mouth of the cat where we think it probably was eating a rodent got poked by a bone or something like that, but there were plague bacteria in the lesion itself as a cat was coughing, sputum there that had the plague bacteria in its oral lesion, so that was possible. The other thing, if you've got an oral lesion in cats, so that cats quite often they get the buvo line plague that swells under the jaws, the jaws, so you get these submandibular buvos, and if those oozing stuff in the cat's licking and trying to clean itself, it gets another claws. So sometimes we get infection where the cats scratch people. And you can see the scratch mark on the kind of the arm of the axillary um, Again, inhalation is very rare, less than two percent. And then in modern times, generally associated exposure to cats in the U.S. So. Okay. Um, and just some examples of rock squirrel flea problems. I mentioned that's a major one in Colorado. There was a very tragic case back in the early '80s. There was a, a two-year-old child at the U.S. Air Force Academy. Was about um, one of the, I think the officers were at the academy, but they had a rock squirrel in their front porch, and the child was bitten by rock squirrel fleas. Diagnosis didn't happen, the child died. Um, that's the kind of situation you get with the rock squirrels, they get in close association with people, bite people and die. Um, 
We've also, again, I mentioned the greatest risk of that south-central, southwestern Colorado, a lot more rock squirrels. We have some rock squirrels all the way up to Fort Collins, but the numbers are really low. They start to pick up, like when you get down to Colorado Springs and further south, and then moving to the southwest, you tend to see a lot more rock squirrels. Get into the Canyon Juniper areas, uh, that's prime plague habitat. Uh, the coniferous woodlands right above the Pinion Juniper is pretty good too. But you get into that Pinion Juniper, that's really good plague habitat, and that's really southern Colorado, southwestern Colorado, so best areas for that. Um, um, Chickmunk, please, as far as mountain exposures in Colorado, we've had some cases exposed to people who have bitten by chipmunk fleas. That's a flea that will bite people. I'm not sure it bites as readily as a rock squirrel flea, but they will bite people. We had a really interesting case up at Dowdy Lake uh, in Larimer County where a woman was, they were having a family uh, cookout and they were roasting wieners or whatever on the fire and they were sitting on these rocks. And what we think happened was that the woman was bitten on the lake by um, chipmunk flea got the disease. We isolated the bacterium so we knew what the back, we had, we could analyze the bacterium. And my team went out there and we trapped rodents and collected fleas and whatever. It was an interesting situation because we knew out of Dowdy Lake there's usually lots of chipmunks around. We just didn't see chipmunks. They were extremely rare out there at that time. We saw a golden mound around squirrels. We trapped some of them. We took fleas off them. We found that the golden mounds had the chipmunk fleas on them. And we took these chipmunk fleas back to the lab, we inoculated them into mice, we isolated clay bacteria from the mice then, and we genetically compared them to the strain that came out of the human, they were identical. So what it looks like happened there is that you had a diet from the chipmunks, the chipmunk fleas didn't have anything to feed on, they're jumping over on the golden mound of ground squirrels then, or humans, the people sitting there. So it looked like there was a chipmunk up as a body went through there, killed the local chipmunk population off and reduced the numbers greatly. Then you have that movement over on the humans because those fleas are trying to find a new host. Um, prairie dog fleas, again, I say are reluctant to bite people, but they will. We had one case in Larimer County, a three-year-old boy back in the 90s, that their subdivision was one of these out in the countryside where you know, everybody's got four or five acres or whatever. There's a prairie dog colony kind of moved into this area, so they had prairie dog bulls in the backyard barrels. And the little kid was sitting on the burrows. Um, there was a die-off there, and so he was right by the burrow entrance where the fleas, they, if you go out after a prairie dog die-off and you get down into the burrow entrance and you blow on it, it kind of looked like popcorn. So all these fleas jumping up and down, waiting for something to come by they could jump on. Unfortunately, this little kid crawled across the burrow entrance apparently and was bitten by the fleas. Developed plague. But again, they don't usually like to feed on people, but they will. And we've had some cases associated with prairie dogs. Um, wood rats are another source of infection. Wood rat fleas. It's kind of hard to say which fleas evolve because they have such a diverse array of fleas on them. But epidemiologically, we've had situations where we've taken infected fleas out of wood rat nests and houses. We're pretty sure that's where the person got it. So that's another case. Uh, there's one really odd case in Colorado back in 1968. There was an eight-year-old girl down near City Park in Denver, got plagued from fox squirrels that were dying off. Um, so whether she had handled the fox squirrel, was bitten by a fox squirrel flea, or some other flea, you know, we don't know. But it was a really odd situation. These fox squirrels were actually dying in downtown Denver. One thing that's odd about that, about seven or eight years ago, they had another fox squirrel die out in Central Park and plague. How plague's getting into the City Park area or down where the zoo's at, we don't know. Um, so, 
So in Colorado, I don't know if you mentioned this, Colorado's had 68 cases reported from 1957 to 2015. So it's really uncommon here. But the weird thing is, we've had 12 cases in the last two years. 12 of those 69 cases occurred in the last two years. Granted, one of them was that cluster of four cases in 2012. But we've still had a high number of cases the last couple of years. And I have to admit, we're really not sure why. Um, we have had some reports of episodics, like die off in prairie dogs, and there have been some reports in the newspaper of prairie dog loss. But it's nothing like back in the early 90s, maybe El Nino in the early 90s. There were prairie dogs and all kinds of rodent die offs all up and down the front range, very, very widespread. We haven't really seen that. So I'm not sure what's going on there, but it's a bit of a mystery. Um, Yeah. Um, okay. Basically, yeah. Uh, if you want to do that. I think we've got a lot of questions for you, and I don't want to get too far from that opportunity. Yeah, the only thing I, the other thing I really have is yeah. mention majors, and we can mention that. So. No, no, let's hear it. Um, so, yeah, that was the last thing I had was a permission. So the oh, yeah. personal prevent protecting measures you can take is to clean your properties up. Don't make them attractive for roads. Untended wood piles. If you got if you got firewood. Stack them up off the ground. Um, don't have abandoned cars, abandoned wood rats, and things like that. Well, abandoned cars, you know, old refrigerators, things like that. Junk piles, that kind of stuff you got to get away. Manage the vegetation. Keep it low cut and away from the house. Um, if you see rodents down under the foundation, whatever, you can trap them out, remove them. Uh, rodent proof your house so that the rodents can't get in. That's good hantavirus protection, too. Um, so, uh, you can do that. Wear gloves when skinning rabbits or other animals. Use DEET as a repellent that's known to work with fleas. Some of these other botanical repellents and what have you, they might work, but they haven't been tested. So DEET has been tested and actually shown to work to repel fleas. Uh, don't allow your pets to roam freely in the plague and zoologic areas, particularly if there's been an uh, epizootic identified in the area. Because your dog or cat can go out and get fleas and bring them back in the house, get in your bed, and then those fleas drop off there and bite you. We've done a study in New Mexico that showed that uh, people who slept with the dogs had a higher risk of plague than people who didn't. And it's pretty obvious what's happened. The dogs going out and fleas, bring them back into the house. Then on the level of the health departments, state, local health departments, um, you can do some, sometimes it's appropriate to do flea control, but not in all situations. Sometimes it's just simply too big an area or it's too remote or whatever. But it is a possibility you can treat the burrows or you can put out bait tubes that the roads that come and feed in the bait tube get treated with insecticide control and leave. Uh, you can post trails or other recreational sites with signs like they showed earlier here. And press releases to warn the public that's quite often done, very appropriate. And some areas, uh, sometimes uh, the environmental health people will actually go door to door, hand out brochures, or give warnings to people, you know, give them advice, let them ask questions about what they think they ought to do. So that's basically it. Okay, so, so three quick things. One is um, Greg Ryan, who provides the sound equipment for Golden Bear Talks, is also a musician. He's playing here on Friday night. I think you should come. He's awesome. Um, isn't this the cutest we ever seen? Sale. So if you're interested, four for $20, C-Barb, 
Let's take a quick break and then we'll come back real quick here in five minutes and we'll do a Q&A. chance we were working with Lawrence Livermore on a plague uh, diagnosis assay, diagnosis assay called LAMP, or the light amplified something else. Um, anyway, they were Livermore was developing, they wanted to do so I sent my team out to the in Adams County, we heard from Tri-County Helper to buy out on prairie dogs there, so it's only about four point miles in Lipsland. So it looks like there was probably two bikes for the prairie dog die out there because the police took off by calling for um, so what it looks like is prairie dog die out there. Now how the dog actually got infected might have been by the prairie dog flea. The dog might have eaten the dead prairie dog, scattered the carcass. Um, rabbits quite often you get a prairie dog die out and then the rabbits move, go in and out of the burrows and they wind up getting infected so they may have eaten an infected rabbit. It's hard to say how it happened but the thing that is pretty clear is there's an episodic bomb that was killing off these rodents in the areas. You mentioned an, an investigation that you did of a case in Wyoming, and it sounded pretty extensive. Do you, every case, do you um, take those same measures where you track it down? Um, we used to do that a lot more than we do now. And when I first got to CDC in 1992, my boss just really thought we should work with the states and go out and investigate all these different cases, as many as we could get. So I, my first 10, 15 years at CDC, I've been out doing a lot of human case investigations in the US. In recent years, we've somewhat changed our emphasis. Uh, one thing when the bioterrorism money came along, that provided some capacity for states, virtue uh, response, et cetera. But it also improved their laboratory diagnostic capabilities. So some of the things we used to do testing for rodents and snake fleas and what have you at CDC, we're not doing that anymore in the states because they have their own capabilities. Colorado's a great example. So a lot of these uh, specimens, dead animals and fleas, are, are tested now in the state. Uh, maybe not so much the fleas, I don't think they get it we used to collect, but, but the rodents, dead rodents, things like rabbits or whatever cats, um, they get tested in state labs. So their capacities come up, and now they are, for the most part, handling the case investigations. We used to do a lot of those uh, um, all over the Southwest particularly, um, but others, other states as well, Utah, Wyoming, uh, uh, Montana, uh, all over the place. Okay, so if, it, if it's not the CDD, CDC investigating, somebody is... It, it's a nationally reportable disease, yeah. and particularly because of bioterrorism. So all these cases need to be investigated. The first thing you want to make sure is that a naturally acquired case. And so, um, well, first thing you want to make sure is you want to find out if everybody else sick out there and get treated. So you have a public health responsibility first. but. But it's a nationally notifiable disease. The states will investigate. Um, and quite frankly, you know, a lot of people say the CDC shows up and they tell people what to do. In reality, we're strictly advisory. Um, the lead on these investigations will be the states. So usually the state epidemiologist will be the person who takes the lead. They will ask for our help. But we're pretty much working under 
you know, providing assistance for them. Not just sometimes we end up calling shots because they, they want to know, you know, what the recommended procedures are, or whatever. But it's it's really states who take the responsibility. Mm -hmm. But early in my career, I did a lot of investigations on the Navajo Reservation, Mexico, Southern Colorado. Mm -hmm. uh, we got trap rows like fleas and all that stuff. Um, well, what's your level of concern about the mosquito thing in this, this Zika? Zika? Well, I work with bacteria from our bacterial vector one diseases. This is all, that's all the arborvirus. But to give you an idea, the impact that's had on our division, division vector one diseases, our division director was supposed to give a talk last week in Miami. Um, and, uh, he was supposed to go down and talk about Zika virus and whatever. And we have had so many of our epidemiologists and medical entomologists be working with mosquitoes in our device, pulled out of our division to respond to Zika. There was nobody left. So it was like a baseball organization. They went down to the A leagues and they got me to go down and give a talk about Zika. <laughs> they were really desperate. <laughs> so I think that shows you though how seriously CDC is taking it. I mean, we, we have virtually assigned versus all the people are our ball diseases branch. And within our division, we also have a dinghy branch that works with dinghy fever, which is transmitted by the same mosquito as Zika. And that branch is in San Juan, Puerto Rico, where it's really having a Zika problem right now. So the dinghy branch is entirely working on Zika right now. It's a tremendous concern. It's interesting, um, I'm not a Zika expert or, or I was, but it's quite interesting the mosquito Aedes aegypti that transmits dengue fever, it's an autoviral disease, break bone fever is the name for it. Very common tropics, very widespread emerging disease. But it, and it transmits another disease called chikungunya that came in three or four years ago, spread very quickly, and our, our division thought that, you know, Congress and what have you should get excited about that and probably get some more money for surveillance, what have you, because that could be a problem. Well, it turned out we didn't get any money for much money for chikungunya investigation or whatever, but that same mosquito then, earlier last fall, brings in, you see Zika virus start to spread, and that got much more attention because it's linked to birth defects. And that's what's driving us, really. I mean, it's it's like two cases in 10,000, you know, pregnant women give birth to a child with microcephaly or whatever, but, you know, that's, I mean, that's just human nature. If you're threatening children, I guarantee you, I know even with plague, I hate to, the thing I hate to do with plagues is investigate fatal cases. And the worst thing to investigate is a fatal case of a child. And that's what you've got here, and it's concern for children. And it is really, I mean, it's a very spooky thing here. I, the fortunate thing for Colorado is that mosquito will not survive up here. It's too cold. It can't overwinter up here. So it would pretty much be restricted to the southern states, area, maybe southern California. Um, so you're not going to see it spreading too far north. But it is a threat, and, and U.S. territories like uh, Puerto Rico and other areas. But the biggest risk is going to be people traveling to the tropics and then coming back and getting sick when they get here, particularly pregnant women that go to the tropics and then come back and if they're infected during pregnancy. It's like, again, I'm not an expert on this, but what it looks like the first trimester is the biggest risk. So. But doesn't it also go people to people? Um, it it looks like there's yeah. some cases, yeah, sexual transmission. Now, yeah. um, no, it looks like that's happening. I, I think if you looked at a percentage of transmission, you know, it's probably far less than one percent is transmitting that way, but it is possible. It looks like so. That's a bit of, yeah, that's a bit of a surprise.
but most of the cases will be mosquito borne, and the control will be preventing mosquito bites uh, either through personal protective measures or um, mosquito control. The other thing would be to get a vaccine. And unfortunately, right now, we don't have a vaccine for dengue, chicken, union, or uh, Zika, which all three are transmitted the same mosquito. So um, last summer when we had the plague found in the squirrels, I thought it was interesting that we went ahead, the decision was made to continue with Buffalo Bill Days. And there were a lot of statements that were made that the chance of transmission was extremely low. Just don't pick up any dead squirrels, I'm paraphrasing. Were, were these fox squirrels or were they, uh, I, I'm going to be honest, I'm not sure about that particular one. Well, there's a flyer on the table. I do you know, Jim? I just I think they're regular three squirrels out of fox squirrels. Um, and I was curious. So I was curious how how risky was well, that? Or how how what's the rate? Of you know, I think I guess I think we used to think it was a lot more risky than we think it is now. When I first got to see it in nineteen ninety two, one of my first assignments, they sent me down to Colorado Springs, and they had us down there. We were crawling up trees and wiring these these tubes up in these trees that had foam rubber on the end, street or the second side in the middle with some peanut butter bait. And the idea was the squirrels would run up the tree, crawl in here, get treated, and kill all the fleas on them. It was a lot of work to wire it all through the trees. Um, but if you look at it statistically, there's been that one case in that eight-year-old girl in the city park. And it seemed to have been associated with tree squirrels. Look at that tree squirrel dives in Fort Collins, um, Reed Loveland, Saddam, um, maybe Longmore has had them, I'm not sure about that. Denver's had tree squirrel bias, Colorado Springs has had a number of them. Um, but we've not had human cases, and what we think there's a flea that's on that, those squirrels, or Ropsla Howardi, that really we don't think it really likes to bite people. I think the bigger risk could be if you have a rock squirrel diet going on, and the rock squirrels, like in Colorado Springs, they're living in these rock piles and they have up against foothills or in the suburbs they're up against the mountains and that goes like Palmer Park has a good population control. But if you've got this, the tree squirrels running around on the ground where the rock squirrels might have died or something, they could pick up a rock squirrel flea and then maybe later die of plague and maybe the rock squirrel flea could jump off on your bite your But if you look at the number of cases, we only had one case in Colorado that's been associated with rock squirrels. And quite frankly, if you use repellent, you don't pick up the dead animals, you stay away from rodent burrows and nests. Um, you know, I, maybe for my own business or something, it'd be great to say, ah, oh, it's so dangerous. But statistically, you've got a much higher chance of being struck by lightning <laughs> than getting plague. And I don't want to minimize it because it can be a tragedy if you get plagued on a tree to die. But there are some preventing measures you can take. You know, if you just watch what you're doing, you don't get around burrows, you don't get hammer rodents, dead rodents, uh, put on repellent, you're, you can, you'll be pretty safe. And I think that's the reasoning behind allowing Buffalo Bill Days to go forward. So this really are pretty low, particularly if people are forewarned, you know. I mean, where we've had cases in the past, we went into investigations, we figure out what animals are involved, we tell people, it's really rare to have another case, even with not just fox squirrels, but with rock squirrels and other things. If people are warned, they know what they should be looking out for, they're thinking about it, and they don't, uh, I'm not exactly sure. Yes? Well, I saw something in the paper today, and I can't remember what the source was. So it said that maybe two less than 
Um, as of a couple of weeks ago, that was still a question up in the air, but we are we do have some of the medical anomalies in our division are going to be working on that. And I think I'm sure some of the university uh, medical anthologists and probably some associate department defense are doing experiments experiments on different culex species, like here your West Nile vectors, culex carcalis, um, that's a virus that's somewhat similar to West Nile virus to these other viruses. So it's reasonable to think they might transmit. I suspect what they'll find is maybe occasionally they transmit like a knocker. That would be my guess. But until we do the experiments, I don't know. My understanding was what I was hearing, they haven't done them yet, but they claim. I was curious about that diagnostic machine you talked about. I'd never heard of it. And recently I've read about IBM's Watson computer, the one that played Jeopardy and won. You've been used for diagnostics. I'm just curious. No, there are a number of companies, laboratory equipment companies, that have automated diagnostic machines. What, I'm not an expert on this, but how does it function? Okay. Well, mechanistically, but the bacteria comes in, it grows, and then you give it substrates and it utilizes it, and you'll see whether it reduces glycerol or, or uh, you know, uh, changes you know, nitrates, nitrites, whatever. There's these biochemical tests, and it keeps track of all those assays. You get a change of color or whatever. And then it gives it a score, like among 30 things you look at, biochemical changes in this fluid that you expose it to. What's, you know, you're positive here, negative here, positive, 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 et cetera. You, add, you put that in, and you can tell from what's positive, what's negative, what the bacterial species is. You can actually code that in as a little computer. And the, the issue is, do you code it? Because there's only like, like a sh one sugar utilization difference you'd see for Yersinia pestis versus this gut microbe. So if that's not programmed in the machine, the machine thinks it's this gut microbe and not pestis. So what's happened is our diagnostic and reference activity in our branch has worked with some of these companies to make sure their diagnostic machines incorporate the codes so they can correctly identify it. It's, it's a correctable problem, and, and there's been a lot of progress about that in, in that lately. So. Yes? Given the relative statistical risk that you know, dengue is much more um, prevalent and, and dangerous for people, chicken thank you. I wanted to say um, but the fact that we're spending so much money on Zika, is there going to be an overflow given the fact that the vector is the same, that, that the money for Zika may actually help prevent some things? It's interesting because a year or so ago, they were saying with chicken gunya, we couldn't do anything because what had happened was we geared up in West Nile came to the US. And that was a classic emerging vector-borne disease. Hits New York, within five years, it's went up clear across the US. Stops on the Pacific Coast within five years. But that one was a zoonotic vector-borne disease infected birds and whatever, so birds are flying and whatnot. Um, this one, this mosquito that's transmitting um, dengue and Michigan and Zika, just lives in sort of based on urban mosquitoes, not much, it doesn't do really well in rural areas, but it's close to people, so people can haul tires with water in them all over the place. It's a container for you to say cans, tires, things like that. So it can get carried around very easily. But Anyway, from the West Nile, you know, it's like everything you do with disease prevention. When an outbreak occurs, everybody wants to jump on it, and the politicians will jump on it. Everybody wants to help, which is great. But what happens is you'll see a pulse in spending, and then you can have a gap with very few cases. We see this plague all the time. We do plague programs in developing countries. We set them up. They've had an outbreak. They're all numb. 
But what happens over time is in reality, it's understandable. There are limited public health resources. And in that gap, until you have another round of West Nile or whatever, you've got other things going on that need money. So, okay, let's take that money, let's put it on this. And so that happens over and over and over again. It's understandable. Um, so what you want to do is try to set up programs that are sustainable. Um, one maybe encouraging thing with this Zika is since it's transmitted by Egypti, which also transmits dengue and chikungunya, if you can set up a reasonable control system for those, for that mosquito, you will have an impact on all three, it transmit all three of those viruses. Hopefully you come up with something sustainable. But that's been a big discussion here with Zika, and my group's been involved in it. We've been working for about 20 years, not me personally, but people are in my group now working on Lyme disease control that I supervise. Um, and they've been using natural products, uh, extracts from yellow cedar, this particular coma called nuke. It's also in grapefruit peelings, um, it's used in cosmetics and what have you. It's usually very safe, but it'll kill ticks and it'll repel ticks. And, and we've also found it kills mosquitoes and repels mosquitoes. So now Microsoft has drawn in to work with this company that has a genetically modified yeast that will produce this nucleotone in huge amounts. We're trying to get a DPA registered for mosquito control, et cetera. But we got drug into this because the discussion came out that we've been trying to control these for a long time. It's not working. We need new strategies, new ideas. So one thing that may come from this, maybe are some new mosquito control techniques, et cetera, that maybe will be a little more sustainable than what we've had in the past. It's, it's ironic in the 70s, they mounted a huge, since 70s, a huge mosquito control program for Aedes aegypti, and they really knocked it back in South America and Central America where the numbers were quite low. And so the disease risk uh, you know, went down dramatically in these areas. But then they no longer supported the program going into the 1980s, and within about 10 years, it had just bounced back to where it was. And now we probably couldn't mount that same level of response because there's so much more urbanization in South America, so so many more containers, so many more people living in these conditions that we couldn't do that same thing again. It just wouldn't work. And so we need new control methodologies, and there's a lot of people interested in doing it. And there's actually some support for it now, but where it goes, I don't see anybody's guess. What Used for prophylactic therapy. Yeah. I said, have you or any of your group ever had plague? No, um, I'm old enough. When I got to CDC, they actually gave me the old plague vaccine. Yeah. And Jim was in the military, so I'm sure he got it too. Um, they used to have a kill bacteria vaccine. They just hit the bacteria with formula and kill it, you know, dry it up a little bit, and then shoot it in your arm. And, uh, it, it appeared to be. Statistics in the Vietnam War, it looked like it protected pretty well against flea bites, but you had to keep getting boosters over time. And you're, you'd get these big knots, <laughs> each point you want, you'd get it worse, and you finally, so we had people at CDC refuse to get any more booster doses after time. The other thing on that vaccine, it didn't protect against airborne exposures, because they had troops vaccinated in Vietnam that ended up getting demonic like inhalation. So it was a suboptimal vaccine. Now the military's been working, both the US military and the British military on recombinant vaccines. Some of them look very promising. There have been in clinical trials forever. 
but they may not see why we see them if they're released because if you look at who we recommend to get vaccinated, it'd be a very small population of lab workers. Maybe some people do what I do, but the general population would vaccinate the plague because it's just such a rare disease and it's treatable with the antibodies. The cost would be justified. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you.